Hello, and welcome to Tabletop Game Talk, a role-playing... Man, what is with me? <laughs> All right, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna continue. You can cut just off. Just keep this. going. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Tabletop Game Talk, role-playing games edition, the once-a-month episode where we talk about a role-playing game topic. I'm one of your hosts, Fletcher. I'm Kitty. And I'm Chris. This week, we're talking about why you might want to run a role-playing game, why you might not want to run role-playing game, and we'll cover what you will and won't need to run a game. Whether you want the power to rule the world or just like weaving a story with friends, there are lots of reasons to get a role-playing group together, and today we'll just scratch the surface on some of them. But first, as always, a thank you to our Patreon friends of the show, Adam Harrison, Miles Clark, and the Gift of Games in Grays Lake. Also, welcome to David Garner, our newest role-playing, role-playing patron? No, just our newest <laughs> patron in general. He might role-play, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> He's only sponsoring one every four episodes. Yeah, plus, plus every four. Um, and thank you to all our favorite patrons as well. And Fletcher, I'm not editing the beginning of that. And just everyone else should know, that was take two, which we yeah. never retake anything. <laughs> Fletcher's like, no, please let me restart. Fine. Yeah, this one we're just we're just going through. Yeah, you made <laughs> me right, practice well. reading my part, but you didn't have Fletcher. <laughs> I practiced I just, it ahead of time too, and it's just it's just I don't want to say talk about a role playing game topic. I want to say where we talk about role playing games. That's just how I want to say it. I've just made you say the same thing for two hundred episodes. So every once in a while, when I change the sentence. I get it. All right. Um, as a reminder, we're on Zoom, and you should join us on Zoom at tabletopgametalk.com slash live. You can get the link and go to Zoom uh, and join us and be in our live audience and hear the stuff we talk to before talk to talk about before we, we hit the record button. But really, at this point, you're hearing all the stuff we talk about after we hit the record <laughs> button, too. Um, I, that's sort of the point, right? So... Yeah, this week we're talking about an exciting topic for me. But first, let's talk about you guys. Anything interesting to share that's happened this week? Fletcher, go. Uh, my dog turned one year old. What? Already? That's crazy. It feels like yeah. yesterday you got that dog. I know. It definitely feels like that. Well, I mean, so we, we picked her up when she was like two months old. So yeah. had her for 10 months. Did that's you, still so a long time. Over the weekend. My Did baby you do the whole is 10 months old-ish. <laughs> What'd you say? Did you do the same, the whole smash cake thing? We didn't do a smash cake. No, oh. uh, we walked. Uh, we walked over to Lincoln Square, and then we went to like um, Rough House, which is like a like a dog and pet shop there, where you can bring your dogs in, let her like run around, pick up, um, get pets, and like pick out toys and stuff like that, and just bought her a bunch of like treats and. Toys. So you went to so Doggy Chuck E. Cheese. Nice long walk. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. I like it. Kitty, any dogs turn one in your house? Um, no, it was Easter this weekend, so I have just eaten my own weight in jelly beans and, you know, the usual. I've, yeah, I've done that too. I, we found that we discovered that Zachary doesn't like jelly beans, so now I have oh, to eat them my all. kids. Really? I guess my yeah. kid. I did not give the baby jelly beans for anyone who <laughs> just heard me say my kids. No, kid, my son loves jelly beans and he will get bribed into just about anything for jelly beans we don't uh so john said something about the black licorice jelly beans but we have the starburst jelly beans which do not have the licorice flavor and they are the best jelly beans jelly bellies are fantastic They're like the as well. only ones you can find in the store anymore you have to like go out of your way to find like 
real jelly beans, like the jelly beans of my childhood. Well, that's because they're disgusting. Really? I feel like you can get jelly bellies at like everywhere. Yeah, yeah those... jelly bellies also not real jelly beans. No, but they're delicious. Um, no, Zachary put one in what his is mouth. A real jelly bean. Wait, <laughs> what is a real jelly bean? They're like bigger than jelly bellies, and they only have like six flavors, and they're only uh, the white that tastes kind of vaguely coconutty, maybe, and there's yellow that tastes like lemon pledge, and then <laughs> orange, red, green, what? and the black. Licorice. They're not good. They're just not good. Why is that a real jelly bean? Because okay, That's I've like, had those before, and you're right, they're not good. Well, so jelly so why, bean is a brand, right? I don't think so. They're is it but not? like those are no, but like all jelly beans before the launch of Jelly Belly were those jelly beans. Like True. everyone could make it's like, you know, taffy or like Michael says they caramel. were rocks. I think that's how you say that. That sounds like, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, Zachary put the jelly bean in his mouth and we had the good ones. I had the jelly belly ones and, and he chewed it a little bit and then he now he's learned a new phrase. Spit it out. Spit it out. <laughs> now he'll wait <laughs> till you give him something to spit it into or give him permission to spit it out. But I'm like, okay. So he doesn't like jelly beans. So we put graham crackers in the Easter egg and that he would he loved. He's like, you know, he'd open up the eggs for the crackers. I'm like, all right, whatever. That's totally fine with me. You don't like jelly beans? I That's 100% cool. But. Kitty, you said before the launch of Jelly Belly. I just looked up when Jelly Belly was founded. It was founded in 1898. So okay, but like they blew <laughs> up in the 90s. <laughs> they is what did. I remember. Yeah, I'm gonna take Kitty's side on this one. Jelly Thank Bellies you. came out of nowhere, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, in the 90s, and because they were they just were like delicious. a part of mall culture. I think they had like those stores where you could go to like the candy stores. I don't know. Like yeah, Reagan. Maybe, Reagan I'm- did Jelly Bellies. He made everyone yeah. excited about jelly bellies. Before that, jelly beans were Brock's that jelly beans, and they weren't good, and you only yeah. ate them on Easter. Well, Reagan was the 80s, and I mean, like, to me, they're always a thing, because, like, yeah, I guess, like, may- maybe they blew up in the 90s, but I was I was five. I was five years old in 1990. So All right, well, that's me, enough. always been a thing. That's enough tabletop jelly belly talk. Um <laughs> <laughs> This topic is going in the vault next to Kickstarter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Time to get back to Bible talk. I was going to talk about <laughs> Robinson Crusoe <laughs> and, and Sentinels of the Multiverse and all of that stuff, but I don't have time anymore. I will say Robinson Crusoe, holy cow, that game is so much better than I ever thought it could be. And I'm now an all-in backer on GameFound because that game is amazing. Um, if you haven't played it, and you it, it like co-op games in even the slightest little bit, just go pick up the base copy right now. And I've I've played five games in the last two days by myself. And yeah. And and I want to get this podcast over so I can go back and and finish my sixth. So let's let's just move on. Like keep it going. Keep it going. <laughs> um, <laughs> so role play. Let's let's talk about role playing games. Um yeah, so this is our once a, once a month episode. Last month we talked about why you might want to play a role playing game. This month we're going to talk about why you might want to run one. And I will preface this by saying the name of the person who's running the game varies based on game. Game master is the generic term. Dungeon master is the term used now for Dungeons and Dragons. It actually started out in first edition as referee. <laughs> and then other games will also have different ways to reference it. The most, um, probably the most notable one there is Call of Cthulhu, you're the keeper 
Um, and then in other games, you might be the storyteller. I think storyteller is the worst possible term for it because that is not <laughs> what you should be doing. Um, but we'll get to that later. So we talked briefly. Story referee. Or referee. Yeah. <laughs> referee is a little... It's a little better. It's better than storyteller. I'll give you that. I think a game master should be halfway between a storyteller and a referee. Um, yes, sort of, (laughs) sort of. But that's that's sort of okay. Before and I put some just brief bullet points in here, and I know you guys don't read the notes, so that's fine. I'm going to ask you this question without assuming you have not read the notes. But Kitty, you have never run a game. To you, what is being a game master involved? Like, what does it involve? What do you envision? that You want to run a Delta Green game, um, which is outside of any game we've talked about so far. And it's a kind it's of an intrigue. It's actually called Cthulhu. <laughs> yeah, it's a Call of Cthulhu intrigue or uh, in- mystery type of, of thing. What do you think is going to be involved in running that game for you? Well, I think it wildly varies by system. So to run a Delta Green game is completely different than to run, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, Pathfinder, Vampire, any of those games. So uh, in Delta Green, they have pre-written scenarios. So it tells me everything I need to have there. But um, I think the biggest thing is you have to be the person who enforces the rules to a certain extent, knows when to break the rules to make it fun and knows the rules for everything that's not just like for the players you have to know what your character does the game master has to know what everything does okay or at least know how to quickly find out what that does that is a very fair impression <laughs> i know a lot of game masters very closely <laughs> and i think um it is my knowledge of what it takes to be a game master that has stopped me from doing it. <laughs> well, I'm I'm going to hope to convince you that most of the things you just said, especially the hard parts, um, are not as as concrete as I think you think they are. But we'll see if I can convince you in in 55 minutes of that or not. <laughs> um, Fletcher, you have run a game. What do you think is yeah. involved in running a game um for me it was mostly trying to think up things on the fly because i would usually have like some kind of rough outline of like what was going to happen during a session and sometimes it would go that way and sometimes it would just veer wildly off course and i had to think of a new direction of like of like what to do and how to make things plausible and still kind of like move the story along and get to like where the ultimate kind of like goal is you know there's usually some big bad that they need to get to but if if you're thinking of ways that they can get there through like a b and c but then they choose method you know x you're like i definitely (laughs) was not thinking of that like like here's the way that's through the mountain it's like yeah that looks too dangerous we're gonna go completely around the mountain you said there was a town over there i'm like well i guess so but i don't really have any content planned but okay let's go around the mountain um that's mainly what it is for me is like thinking up things on the fly and coming up with like plausible scenarios and less about uh, the rules because the rules you can fudge into whatever. Uh, and also uh, <laughs> getting monsters and knowing the stats for monsters. The rules you can fudge, but like knowing the stats for monster- monsters. And when I was doing it, like there was no lookup. So you had the monster manual, like the book, and you're like flipping through everything. And it's like, 
okay, what, you know, what can the kobold do? What can the chief kobold do? What actions can they take? Yeah, I mean, you can, so you can fudge all of that eventually, um, but that actually does take a little, a little bit of time. So, um, John actually mentions in the chat, and I'm going to just put this right on the top. Um, the idea that the dungeon master or game master has to know all the rules is a fallacy. However, it is not one that you should ever fault anyone for, typically because players who are playing in a group look at the game master and be like, oh, you know everything. And that is the one thing the game master needs to do is have the illusion of, hey, I know what's going on. I can facilitate this group. So it looks like the game master knows everything, but they don't have to. And the rules are actually the least important thing the game master needs as long as the players know the rules. Now, if nobody at the table knows the rules, it's going to fall on the game master to pick that up. So when Kitty's talking about Delta Green, she's thinking of a group that's never played Delta Green. So she's going to take on that responsibility of saying, I need to know how this system works because nobody knows how this system works. And that's just going to fall on me. But Kitty, it is completely fine to say, hey, I want to run a Delta Green game. I have a general idea of how the rules work. Here's the PDF. Learn your characters because I'm going to focus on the story. You guys focus on your characters and how to use them. So something that... So I have almost run many games, (laughs) I will say. (laughs) And I usually get to the point where like, like I either have to get a group together or like there's a point where... I just run out of time for reading things and I don't know what to make other people read. And the thing that's really intriguing me about Delta Green is they have this really great starter guide and it's only like, I want to say 15, 20 pages long. And it has everything you need to know to like run your first scenario. And then you can go deep dive into more rules. And um, I don't know. It just, like that seems so manageable compared to, well, I need to read like trying to figure out like which chapters of what book I have to read to do these things. I don't know. It it's yeah. well, it's and hard. also <laughs> the the Call of Cthulhu role playing game in general is based on a system called the basic role playing role playing system, which is really everything's percentage dice. Everything's a percentage mm-hmm. that it can happen. So it does make it relatively easy to say, oh, you have this skill, you have this percent chance, roll percentage dice, and let's see what happens, um, which does make it a little easier. So I, I want to start, I, I definitely want to, I don't know if I'm trying to convince you guys to run a game. I, that's not necessarily <laughs> my intent. My intent is to put, to let people know why they might want to run a game. And if they don't, then let them know like why they might not want to run a game. I want to I want to dispel the fallacies of <laughs> oh it's so much work. Um it is more work than a player, but not it doesn't have to be that much more. But I want to start out with why not to run a game. Do not run a game because you want to tell a story. Don't do it. To Fletcher's point, your characters are not the the characters in the game are not going to do what you want them to do ever. Don't plan <laughs> on your characters doing anything ever. Um I'm going to use our vampire game as an example for a few of these because um, <laughs> we're going to pick it back up. And I was actually just talking to Spencer this weekend about the game. And one of the things that – so that game started to stall out a little bit. And one of the reasons why uh, – not to pick on Spencer, but just one of the reasons why is because in his mind, he knows everything that's going on. But the players 
and the player characters have no idea what's going on. And we have no idea what to even do to try to get more information. So part of the problem with that type of situation is, well, this is my story. I expected the characters to do this and this, and they didn't. So I don't know what to do because this is my story. Don't tell a story. Set up a framework where a story can be told. And that makes it much more interesting. Like, I don't try to tell a story. I try to I set up situations. There's things that are happening in the world. But the story is what the characters do and how they react to them. And so, that is more important. So to Yeah, be f- I would say, like, don't, don't try to tell a story. Have, like, an interesting idea. Yeah. Like, like this is an interesting idea for a story. I'm not going to tell this story. The players are going to tell the story. So but to be fair to Spencer, <laughs> it's set up to be a mystery. We told right. him we wanted to solve a mystery. So it's not that he was trying to tell a story. It's that he set up a mystery. And like we weren't able to very well distinguish what was a clue versus what was like something kind of random he said on the fly. And I think that that's where sometimes you can get into trouble where like in, you know, a video game, you get like the highlighted like clue. This is a clue. You get the giant question mark icon over the thing. (laughs) And he was trying really hard not to railroad us by being like, this looks very important. But I think by giving in some ways, he gave us too much freedom and we weren't solving the mystery. We were doing like tons of other stuff and we were like. Uh, we did all these things, but we don't seem to be getting close. And it's just like, so part of his relaunch of this game is I stopped playing because I was too pregnant to stay awake that long. (laughs) So my character dropped (laughs) off before we ended the story where the rest of you guys stopped playing when Sydney got too (laughs) pregnant to stay awake that long. So I think my character's coming in with some new leads for us, more obvious and question marky in nature. (laughs) Yeah, well, and and that's my point of just don't try to tell your story. Even if it's a mystery, whatever, the characters are going to do whatever they're going to do. And sometimes it doesn't matter. You decided to go down this, this lead that didn't make any sense to my story well, that's fine. Here's this clue that you're going to need to feel like you made progress. It wasn't in my original plan, but it's what you did, and it's going to make the game move on, and it's going to make it interesting for everyone. Um, now, we I, we don't have time to get into specific advice. There's an entire <laughs> podcast that run for years long on that. But my main thing is, if you want to tell a story, write a book, write a novella, write something. If like That's not what you will be doing when you run a game. If you're trying to tell a story, it won't work. Your characters, your players are not cooperative. They're not in your head. They don't know what what you want. Um, the other th- reason, and the other, this one here is, um, the next two are kind of related. Don't run a game because you want to be more powerful than the players. Um, <laughs> you are not the player's adversary. You're not their enemy. You are not there to win it isn't DM, GM versus players. D- you can't think that way. Your job is there to make everyone at the table, including yourself, have fun. And if you feel like it's a competitive thing between you and the players, well, guess what? You win. Rocks fall. Everyone dies. You win. <laughs> Congratulations. So so don't... Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's not and what... And an elder dragon appears yeah. and kills everyone. But we're level so, one. Yeah. And he eats I, you. I, I win. 
I do think it can be fun, though, to have, like, if that's what everyone is into, to have that kind of adversarial relationship, as long as the DM is like, I want to kill you by the rules fairly. But there is no such thing. So, but I agree with you. So the, what you're talking about, as a game master, you want to create that illusion. You want that create that illusion that I am not out to be your friend. I'm out to kill you. But at the same time, there's no fairness. When you're the when you're the game master, there's no fairness. You can do whatever you want. You can put a challenge in front of people and be like, well, you shouldn't have walked in to fight that elder dragon. Like, it's not my fault you died, but that we didn't see anything else to do. Why did you put a dragon there if that wasn't what we're supposed to do? Like, eh, because I want like it's a it's a tricky tight white rope to walk. Don't I think start this is that way. More of a um thing that happens in pre-written adventures this tends Mm -hmm. to be you can set up the adversarial relationship a bit better because you did not create the elder dragon in the room you are merely i want to run my elder dragon the best that i can against a somebody else has fairly matched the levels of this you know like and i i think that that's one way to make things like if you enjoy that kind of relationship, then maybe stick to the pre-written things because you're both kind of playing like your pieces of a board game more. It feels more like a one versus many kind of game, not like a I built this world just to like be the puppet master and destroy you. Yeah. Well, and again, I, I agree. Everyone else is missing my hand motions. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to do something adversarial, Pup- having puppet master hand motions. <laughs> yeah. Seven, having someone else create the scenario is the best way to do it. But every good, and I'm going to say this as I, I rarely do absolutes, but I'm going to do this as an absolute. Every good pre written adventure, somewhere on the very first page, will say, change whatever you want to make the game fun. Because. There will be situations where a pre-written adventurer isn't ready for the five rogue party. Like, that's just not what it's set up to do because it's a pre-written adventure and that there's, you know, certain assumptions that they're making. Um, expect that there is nothing in a pre-written adventure that the game master has to stick to and you shouldn't stick to it if it's not turning out to be fun. Just, just change it. All right. So that's why you shouldn't DM a game. <laughs> why should you? Open question. Everyone. Uh, I feel like you should tell us. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone I know, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, Chris, because you do GM quite a bit. Everyone I know who GMs wanted to play, but couldn't find someone else to GM for them. So they decided they were going to do it. Like you take on that responsibility because no one else will. <laughs> that is a fine reason to get into it. Um, I will say that. I don't know if that's how it... Because I started DMing, or GMing, actually, um, a superhero role-playing game in high school. And I knew that I was going to run the game because I didn't... Exp- I, I wanted to play that game, and I knew that no one else would run it. But it wasn't... I wasn't concerned about being a player in the game. I was concerned about wanting to play the game. So yeah. I would facilitate it. And yeah. that's how I got into it, and I just never stopped facilitating but if somebody else was running it and you could have just played with those same people with someone else in that same group running it, would you have done that too? Probably. Today, I have a hard time doing that because I've been running games for so long. But probably at the time, I would have had fun doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are aspects 
the, there are certain things about being a player that I just hate. I was going to say don't like, but I just literally hate them. I, I just, oh, being a player, there's so little going on. Um, once you're on the, the other side of the screen and you have so much going on, on the player side, you're just like, all right, I'm bored. Like, wait, three other people have to do something before I can do something? What do I do? I'm just going to pull out my phone. Oh, wait, no, that's a terribly rude thing to do. So this is this is the mindset of that things that go in. But I agree with you that I think <laughs> one of the ways to do it, you have a you want to run a game. No one else is going to run it for you. Just run it. Um, I think the other main thing that the thing that drives me these days is I like running games because I like um, I, I wrote in the notes facilitating fun. And I think that that's really still the thing I want to stick with is I like getting people together where, hey, we're going to play this fun game. And if I don't run it, it won't happen. And it's fun for me to watch other people have fun like that's. That's why I run role-playing games. And if you don't have fun doing that, if that's not something you like, you don't like, you know, having helping your friends have fun, uh, first of all, hmm, introspective on that one. But um, <laughs> you also wouldn't be a good DM because that it is your responsibility. That is your sole responsibility is just making sure everyone's having fun. And that's the hardest part of running a game. But it doesn't have anything to do with the rules. It really has very little to do with the story. Um, it just has to do with like seeing what people are interested in and kind of playing off of those things. I would say like another reason to um, GM is to get a different perspective of the game. It's kind of like a whole other side of the game that you haven't yet played yet, and to get you know a better understanding of of what's going on. But it's essentially like. I don't know. There's two sides of this game. You can be the player or you can be the GM. And if you only ever play the player side, you're only playing like potentially half the game. Yeah. Well, and it's true. And you get a perspective on what the GM is doing. You know, what are they like? How does that feel? And which is one of the reasons why I have been trying to play in more games in the last few years is because if you're always the game master, you forget what it's like to be a player. So it it goes both ways. If you're always running games, you are going to you're probably you have certain skills that you're really good at, but there's certain things that you forget about being you have on a that very particular side. set of skills. It's a particular <laughs> set of skills. Um but yeah, I mean, especially so if you've never played a role-playing game before, you're not gonna this isn't gonna be a big thing. But if you do play and you're a player often, running a game is gonna help you you're going to be a better player for doing it. Because one of the things that is hard for the game master is keeping that story moving forward. Um, you know, we talked about it in the vampire game. Um, it, in, it's basically in all kinds of things. And sometimes players do things that make it hard to move that story forward. I'm throwing out a hook. Why isn't... It's like, oh, and the dragon is... You see the dragon off in the sky attacking the town over there. Um, yeah, we're just going to open up a shop over here. That's not a good player, <laughs> right? And if you were on the I other forget, s- I forget the person that wrote in that's, that said, like, their party eventually decided to, like, you know, he was he was a GM for a Cheers bar yeah. <laughs> in the D&D universe. It's like, oh, okay, well, you have no interest of that and you just want to run a bar. All right, I guess I'm just going to throw patrons and things at you. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like it's, you're not being a good player when you do that. Um. Good players help 
facilitate the story. It's a cooperative storytelling game. That's what a role-playing game is, is a cooperative storytelling game. The players have to work together with the dungeon master in order to do that. If you just want to keep throwing curveballs at the dungeon master so none of their story ideas work, fine, but no one's going to be having a good time there. And as a new dungeon master, it's very, very common that they want to tell their story and it becomes a very Rails thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But your players still have to buy into that and saying, okay, I see that hook that you're putting over there. I'm going to walk towards the hook. Because if we don't, I feel like we're going to be spoiling things for everyone at the table. Someone has to be able to help out. And the more it, the more you're on the other side of the screen, the other side, well, the DM side, whatever, the more you understand when someone needs help advancing that story along. Now, a strong DM can just kind of force things as they need to. When I say force things, I mean invisible railroading, um, where it's like, I am presenting you with multiple choices. One of them is making sense. The other ones don't. It's an invisible railroad. It's giving you the illusion of choice. This is an advanced thing. Don't worry about it. Just know that eventually you'll get there. But at the start, you may need your players to help out a little bit. Another good reason to want to run a game, um, you just kind of like setting up interesting scenarios for people to work through, and you like seeing what people do. Um, an example I like to throw out here, though, is say I set up a riddle. Here's You walk into a room. There's nine squares on the room uh, on the floor. Two of the lights are lit up, the upper left and the center one. There's a door on the other side that you can't open with anything. Ready? Go. How do you get through this room? Go ahead. We're playing right now. Fletcher, what yeah. do you, what's your character I don't do? Know. Is, what is this? Is this Radio Zork? <laughs> I checked the handle. So, check all, the all right. Handle. And this is the thing. And this is where you start going. Now, this is a scenario that I might actually do in a game where here I have set up this scenario. I have I don't have a solution for this scenario. I do this almost every riddle or puzzle I've ever run in a game. I don't know the solution because I don't care. It is more interesting that the players come up with a solution than I do. If I come up with a solution first, then the players can just get stuck in a circle not being able to come up with my exact solution. This is something that is very fun for me, and players also enjoy coming up with solutions and whatever the reason is. You know, John just mentioned tic-tac-toe. Oh, this is a tic-tac-toe game. As we look closer on the floor, one of these things has an X and the other one has an O. Okay, now you start, you know, working through that puzzle. And as soon as we get, you know, a winner to the tic-tac-toe game, the, the door opens up. That is not anywhere close to what I was thinking when it first came in, when I first said that five, three minutes ago. But now that's the story. If you like doing those kinds of things, you will be a great game master because most of game mastering is improv and just letting things happen and watching to see where things go. If you don't like doing those sorts of things, that's fine too. You don't have to. That's not a requirement to be a game master. It can have a puzzle or it can have a solution. That's 100% okay. And if your players can't get it, let them make skill checks to give them clues. That is fine as well. Thoughts? Sorry, my kid fell out of bed and is crying. It was very distracting. That's when you ask and go. I didn't hear any of that scenario. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's another thing you have to be good at. And actually, that's the, literally the next thing on my list. You want some practice dealing with the unexpected. Um, whether that be in real life or in the game, when you're running 
a game, you are getting immensely good practice just facilitating groups and dealing with things that come out of left field. The best meeting managers in my mind in the business world could be DMs, and they probably were at some point in their life. If they can manage an unruly group, you know, you were probably a dungeon master in a past life, weren't you? Oh, well, yeah, I actually play every <laughs> Thursday. I'll be right back. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, Fletcher, how when you talked earlier yeah. about like having to come up with the I want to go on the other side of um you know like the players decide to go around the mountain instead of through the path like is right. that something you find difficult to do or is that fun for you to do or like what was what was your reaction to that um so it, in my head i mean it was like the first time that i was doing it so i was running into a lot of the same traps that uh, that we talked about earlier like having a story to tell eventually i kind of like dissuaded myself from that and it was just better to pick, to stick to like broad themes but in the beginning it's like okay like it was hard to deal with cuz i was like they're going to go down this path because that's what the quest giver said that they needed to do go down this path so they can get to the mountain you know go to the cave in the mountain um and you know that's what they're going to do and when they're there they're going to find this and i had this kind of like you know a loose kind of like dungeon kind of like planned out and what's going to happen there and then they're just like yeah you know no you said that you know there was a path that veered off to the left and there was another town there we want to check out that other town. I was like, all right, I didn't really prepare any content for that, but uh, let's travel to this other town then. <laughs> um, so, and, and like in that specific case, like, yeah, it was, it, it, it was a little bit more difficult. So I was like, okay, you know, I already had some like monsters like lined up that were, they were going to find in the cave. I'm like, well, they're not going to find these monsters in the cave anymore. So I guess they're going to encounter some, you know, bandits along, along the road. So how to quickly look up, you know, bandits and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I found that a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I there's a number of ways to deal with that. So when I was doing fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons, um, one of the major issues with that game was everything was a tactical map combat. So anytime there was a combat encounter, I would have to make sure I had the miniatures ready for it and have a map ready for it and basically set up the board. And what I would do to facilitate what you're talking about is I would have maybe a half a dozen encounters ready for whatever the players might do, but not specifically for what the players might do. So I might have two cave encounters, two wilderness encounters, and two city encounters, and just have them in my back pocket. And I may not use them for weeks at a time. But if ever I needed a random city encounter... I would just pull this one out because I was ready to go for it. Um, if you listen to enough role-playing podcasts or read up on it, you hear about this concept of the quantum ogre. If I go left, and this is this is what I want my players to do, I want them to go left. And oh, they go, yeah. they're going to go down mm-hmm. the path. And when they go down the path, they're going to meet this ogre. And this ogre is going to give them a riddle and make them do whatever. Well, my players went right. And they went down the path. But there's no ogre down the right path. So they can, I don't know what's down there. I didn't plan out because I never expected them to go right. Guess what? Until you say it at the table, it doesn't matter what they do. Yeah. You went right. They meet the you ogre. You encounter this ogre. Yeah. That's yeah. the kind of thing that I was talking about earlier where you can fake the, it's this, it's this forced railroad where as long as your players don't know they're on a railroad, they're not on a railroad. And you don't have to be perfect at improving certain situations because you can simply say 
hey, you meet this ogre. And you had already prepared for this. You may tweak how it happened or the storyline around it and make it a little bit more interesting. Oh, you're going towards the town? Great. As you're walking towards the town, you get, there's, you know, a canyon that you have to go down because it's either climb the mountain or go into the canyon. And once you go down to the canyon, now you're in cave monster territory again. And now that cave monster encounter that didn't make sense on an open road makes a lot more sense in this canyon. You can throw the exact same encounter at him stalling so the next session you can you know prep some what this city is type of things so there's a lot of things you can do it's just you have to remember until it's said out loud your players it's it's not real it's not that your players don't know about it it's that it's literally not real in that game it never happened you have a crazy mystery to set up and the players aren't figuring it out doesn't matter they don't know about it change it so that the players can figure it out it it's just don't don't think you have to be forced into a particular story, um, which goes back to the first one. Don't tell a story. Let the story just unfold. Kitty, any comments on any of this before I move on to the next things, next subject? Um, I mean, I have some thoughts on telling a story or not. Um, I think that that can be heavily system dependent. I don't think you should know the story you're telling, but I think that you have to have elements of the story you're telling um ready to go because i don't know like you said you know you didn't plan for what happens if they go right i i don't know like i think you should have an idea of what happens wherever your players go and you have to have those like you have points that happen and you have to let the characters create the threads that string them together so you said two things that aren't necessarily <laughs> related. I agree with the second. The first one, I think, is an overwhelming task. You don't have to n- have points for everything your players can do. But if you have the points, if you go back to that second point, if you know what the- is going on in the world and your players do something you don't expect, you can come up with something your player your players encounter very easily. I guess my point was more like you don't have like if you set up like the scenario set up was that that your players can go left or right. That's only two things you have to have happen. And it's, even then, it's an abstract can, example. Like, yes. But like you said, players- you know, your your point can be still that like, I don't know, your your point stands of whether they go left or right, they can encounter the same ogre. I don't think that I don't, and that that's fine. <laughs> well, the thing is, so left and right, here's your, here's your branching thing. That's not all they can do. Uh, we don't want to go either way. We're going to turn around and go back. Mm-hmm. And the ogre is suddenly like, behind them. It came out of the woods. Right. Sure. Well, what I'm saying is, <laughs> what I'm saying is, there is an, no matter how many pre- choices you think you've presented to your players, there's an infinite number of possibilities. And you can't plan for them all. Uh, yes. But it, I, I mean, maybe this is just like my, you know, this is why. I, what I think a GM has to do, so why I haven't done it, is like, I don't know, I think that no matter which way you go, the ogre shows up is kind of railroading. But I do think you have to have a certain number of choices that you expect them to sort of make. Like, I, you know, here's three good ideas, and here are three things that could happen, and then, you know... 
the weird decision that you hadn't thought of, you can modify one of your maybe ideas into fitting what they've done. You know, you don't have to come up with like the infinite solutions that they might come up with, but you have to have enough flexible ideas that whatever they choose, you have something there. So you don't have to, and you always find the ogre. Um, I disagree with everything <laughs> you've just said. But that is but so? the reason well because the players can still choose to ignore the ogre even if you have it yeah. have them show well, up. Yeah, and they can ig- choose to ignore the ogre and it's also or just choose to kill the ogre. An ogre appears and starts talking to them. Yeah, it's only a railroad if the your paladin players, flies in with the battle axe and kills the ogre. Yeah. It's it's only a railroad if your players think they're on a train. That's that's the main thing that I I'm so as far as like the ogre appears in all places it's not a railroad to your players on the player perspective. Now, and this is, again, an abstract example. Um, we use the quantum ogre because it facilitates an idea that I set this up and expecting my players to do one thing, but they did this other thing. Well, it doesn't mean that all the things you set up are thrown away. It means that you reuse what you can to make sense of what the characters did. You didn't have to, you don't have to come with everything up front. I don't need an ogre here and a goblin squad there and a evil maniacal cobalt, you know, dragon boss over here. I can prepare what I need to prepare, and if my players do something odd, I can reuse the things I've used. I may I may even reskin it. I may say, okay, if you went left, you would have found the, the ogre, but you went right. You didn't find the ogre. You found a giant. He just happens to have the exact same stats because right now that's the stat block I have in front of me. But your players never know that, and that's the trick to being on the DM side and not feeling intimidated like you have to know everything. If I tell you you cannot run a game unless you have a solution for everything your players do, that is an overwhelming amount of work. I could never do that. I would never I didn't I, say that though. Yeah. So well, I feel well, like you, you said you well, disagree with everything I said, but you didn't well, actually disagree with anything well, what I you said. said. The part I disagree with is that you think that you have to have something in mind for whatever the players can do. No, I think you have to have a few things in mind for what you think the players might do. Like, I think, like, you know, have a couple of, like, likely ideas. Have a couple of... I, and this is, I don't know, more flexible homebrew type stuff. Because I think that when you have these, like, kind of pre-written adventures, you know, they have stuff and like if they're completely outside i mean like you know in pathfinder there's the joke of like this is outside the scope of this adventure <laughs> like sure i don't you come up it's across a, that you know like you you have to direct them back but like if they keep if they're determined to get outside of the adventure at some point you have to tell them like this is beyond the scope yeah. of the adventure yeah so and you can do that um i think that that you rarely should ever use that phrase um i get that some groups will use that as a kind of tongue-in-cheek way of saying hey you guys I was are gonna getting say, off it's the, like the, the inside joke kind of thing of it is yeah. like you know because i think that's what the books say is like you know yeah and this path is outside the scope of the you know like that's how it's written yeah so typically i would say the pre-made adventures are a lot harder to run than homebrew um for me anyway because i don't mind coming up with whatever 
needs to be needs to happen depending on where they go. Um, and honestly, some of the best storylines I've run have been things that were just spontaneously created on the fly. I'm glad I didn't prepare those because my prepared stuff isn't nearly as good as the stuff I just have to come up with. But pre-made adventures, because they're so limited in their scope, it makes it a lot harder to deal with when players want to do something different. So oftentimes when players are playing a pre-made adventure, like you know, D&D Adventures League, one of the concessions the players make is, we just have to follow the storyline. Like we don't get to make any choice. And one of the things that I did very often when, when running these was at the beginning, I don't care what this module says. You do not have, and because that was actually said at my table once is, oh, well, the, the module is going to have us do this. We have to do this. And I stopped. I'm like, you guys can do whatever you want. I know what the module says. It doesn't mean that you guys have to do what this does. Now, not every DM would say that, but I don't want people to feel like they're, you know, stuck to that module. I'll make it work. That is not something that a first-time DM should feel like they have to do, though. But you should also not feel like you have to prepare for every possible path. So what do you need to do to be a DM? Um, Kitty, you mentioned earlier that you should know the rules. Um, and I agree with that. I, I think you should have a general understanding of the rules. Especially as a beginner DM, you should know the rules as well as you can. Um, if you don't it's going to make it harder on you and you're going to be more uncomfortable because your player is going to ask you questions and you're not going to know the answers and that's going to throw you off. So knowing the rules is not a bad thing. You don't have to be an expert at them, especially if you have someone else in your group that is an expert, perfect. Then you don't have to worry about the rules almost at all. But if you're a new DM to a new group, read the rules, maybe read them twice, understand the combat rules, um, and understand that you can just, if you don't know a rule, as long as you get the general feeling for the game, let it happen. Um, so in your Delta Green game, I might be like, um, you know, I want to uh, hotwire this car. Well, there's not a hotwire car skill. Actually, there is. Okay, it's fine. It's called larceny. Uh, fine. <laughs> well, but that's great, right? Because it's not, doesn't say hotwire car. It's like, okay, perform a larceny check. Well, I don't have larceny, but my background says, you know, I used to be a mechanic. So now what do well, you Well, then it should be your engineering role. Otherwise, everyone gets 20% in all of their roles. So, okay. Or I think it's a base 10%. So you've got a 10% chance of doing it, even untrained. Great. It doesn't really make so, sense in real life, but that's how the game works. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. But but it's like, okay, so do I get to apply my mechanics background to this? So do I get an extra 20% bonus or like? Um, I mean, like, I would, I would say as my GM thing i would say either i choose to let them say like this is part of my mechanic training cha- uh, training and say okay now it's an engineer check use that skill instead or no this is larceny <laughs> <laughs> so and make them this, do it that way <laughs> so the first you one know, is it's good depending GM. on how nice you are <laughs> no no the first one's good gm the bat second one is terrible gm um that's basically what it what it comes yeah. down to so and 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 I'm being overly critical on that. Well, I mean, because, you know, to be fair, the way you could think of it, like maybe as a GM, you're telling me I should be able to be a mechanic so I can make this hot wiring a car check easier. But I would say, well, you should use larceny because it's not just about the mechanics of hot wiring the car. It's who's looking, how, you know, which car are you choosing? How is this playing out? It's not just the act of hot wiring, it is stealing the car. And if yes. that's how I sell it to you, 
I think that's good GMing. But if I'm just telling you, no, the rules say you have to make a larceny check because that's how the book says it, then that's bad GMing. I would say, <laughs> sure. What I and, and this is another thing where, um, and again, there's entire, in, so many podcasts <laughs> on this. Um, GMs should typically want to say yes. They should typically want to see yeah. the character succeed. So if engineering, if your character's saying, but I should be able to make an engineering check, then say, okay, you can make an engineering check. You, you can hotwire the car. You don't have a problem doing that. But it's going to be obvious that you're doing something with this car because you don't have any larceny skill. So there's a chance that someone else is going to see you do this. You're not saying, no, you can't do what you want to do. You're saying, because you're not trained in this other skill as well, there could be consequences if you do it. Which is an easy... Yeah, is a, I, and I think you want to let them... I mean, like... If you want there to be consequences for them to steal a car, you can either let them succeed into their failure or fail into success some way, you know, like you want to make it fun. And as long as it's feeling fun at the table, it doesn't matter exactly why it's feeling fun. You you what don't want you to want. We must follow the technicality of the rules. We want to do what's fun. But also, like, I can't have you like. Now we steal a car and we drive off into the sunset and our game, you know, or maybe like, yeah, sure. Our game is going to Vegas now. Like that does work in this scenario. But at the same time, like, and now at the PS, this entire town was destroyed by this otherworldly horror because you guys drove off in this car to go play in Vegas. (laughs) Oh, yeah, sure. That certainly can happen. But let me switch this around. You are now the character who wants to hotwire the car. What would you want your GM to say? In that situation, your character is a master master mechanic, but you're not a larcenist. You're just a master mechanic. You come across this car and you're not a larcenist. You're not a larcenist. <laughs> you come across this car and you want to hotwire it. What would you want your GM to say in the in like, can I hotwire this car? Um, I think I like the answer of you can choose to make a 10% larceny choice like roll. And if you succeed, you steal the car successfully. Or you can use your, you have 50%, let's say, in engineering that you can use. And you even if you succeed at hot wiring the car, you might still have consequences for stealing the car. You will have succeeded in hot wiring it, but you might not have succeeded in stealing it. And maybe there's another role that I want you to, I want you to make an intelligence role to add to your mechanics skill. So you have to succeed at your intelligence role and then your mechanics role to, and you have that choice. Do I want to take two 50% rolls or one 10% roll? Interesting. I I mean, like I, I want to be told, (laughs) yes, here are your choices and the possible consequences. I don't want to be told, no, you have to do this. Like I, I like the I like having choices as a player and I like, you know, theoretically giving choices to people. Yeah. I I like yeah. to know I like to know the odds, you know. I'm not Han yeah. Solo. Matthew Matthew Tell mentions me the, the Yeah, Matthew <laughs> mentions the rule of cool, um which I think is something that all game masters should remember. It does not matter how absurd your players want to get if it's cool and it doesn't break the game. It's probably okay to say yes. <laughs> That's a big 
and it doesn't break the game. Because <laughs> yes. there was a lot of cool stuff that you could just be like, oh, yeah, this is super cool. But, like, you know, you have to keep in mind, like, we have to, you know, continue our game in this universe. We can't just full on <laughs> break yes. the universe. Yes, it, exactly. It, it can't not it can't break the game. But if it doesn't and it's cool it's likely okay to say yes. Now it's there's no blanket statement on this. It's just a general gut feeling. Um and that's that's really what a DM and GM does is it's a gut feeling. Is this the right thing to do? Eh, probably. But I will say if you say no too many times, your players are going to get bored. If your players are constantly told about what they can't do, it's it's going to be bored. Normally players are not asking to do things that they don't reasonably think that their characters could do. So it's almost always okay to say yes unless you have that player that's just trying to push things to an extreme. So I like um you know in improv the you know the yes and you're always supposed yes, to yes and. and yes and um but <laughs> something that I I don't know if I invented this or I've just adopted it into my life is that no but so if you can't yes and, you can at least no but. So Correct. yeah, you you don't ever want to just say no. You can say no, but you can do this. Or no, what about this? You know, you you can't just say no. If your player says, "I want to do this." And you know, it is rule breaking. It will destroy like, you know, we can't come back from this. You should at least present them with no, you can't do that. But here is the reasonable version of that. Or you can come up with something completely different. It's your choice, yeah. player. <laughs> yep. All right. Between the two of you, how much time do you think you should spend prepping to run a game? It depends on how long the game session is, I would say. Well, say, like say you're prepping for a, like a four-hour game session. Jeez, uh, I don't know. It's been a long time <laughs> since I've done this. Maybe like... If it was a four-hour game session, I would probably prep like an hour for a four-hour game session. I mean, that's the rule of thumb for... Um, actually, no, I think for teaching, isn't it? For every two hours you spend in the classroom, you're supposed to spend one hour prepping or doing some other work in relation to it. Maybe it's four to one. no idea. I don't remember. I'm not a teacher. It's been a while. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think about an hour prepping for a four-hour session seems about right. But I think there's a lot of leeway in how well you know the system and what kind of adventure you're running, I think, in something. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it depends on also, like, what kind of game you're running. Like, you can imagine a scenario where, kind of like what we're doing right now, it's homebrew, but the Ish. players are already <laughs> in a dungeon, right? Yeah. I'm saying like in this imagined scenario, they're they're already in a in a big dungeon. They're already there. So if you wanted to essentially like draw out the entire map and like create all the rooms and stuff like that, you could definitely do that. And it would make I guess running the game maybe a little bit easier unless they decided to just like back out of the dungeon and like, nah, never mind, we won't don't want to do this anymore. But you could pocket that in case they ever want to come back. But um yeah, I would say probably about, I don't know, four to one ratio. And I actually have fun kind of like coming up with those type of dungeons, you know, like drawing them all out, figuring out what monsters are going to be in what rooms and the puzzles and all that kind of stuff. Though a lot of it may end up being like wasted time. But <laughs> yeah. I guess if you're having fun just like coming up with it as a DM, it's not that 
much wasted time. Yeah, it's not wasting you like your it. time if you enjoy doing it. Like, if you want to spend yeah. hours and hours drawing a dungeon that's fun for you, you know, go ahead and do that. But, you know, I don't think that you have to do that necessarily. And I think there's a lot of dungeons that are already created out there that you don't have to come up with a dungeon. You can just be like, all right, I'm dropping my players in this dungeon. <laughs> Google it. Yeah, the, I can't even tell you how many modules out there are dungeon crawl here you go here's your monsters here's your dungeon <laughs> yeah i would right. say for a pre-made adventure your prep time is probably one for one if you're running a four-hour adventure you're probably have spent well probably two to four hours prepping that adventure depending on again what you said the type of adventure there's a lot going on there the better you get, the less time you need, because the more previous skills you can apply to what you already know. But in general, like if I'm running, uh, all right, Dungeon of the Mad Mage. This is the the technically the adventure we're running through in our D and D game. If I w- was to read that entire thing and prep that entire thing, it would probably take me as long to prep it as it would take you guys to play it, because it's just a huge amount of information that I have to go through. If I'm doing homebrew. I can do that much easier because I know that most of my creation time is going to happen at the table with everybody else. I need to know where the adventure started, where it's going. I need to know some events that are happening in the world so that I have an idea of what's going on around you. But what happens, I do improv improbably. Improbably? <laughs> I improv at the table. Improvisationally. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. At the what table. What I do, I do improbably. Yeah. That, that fills out the details. Um, Look, I'm jazzing. I, yeah, I don't need to prep for stuff that I don't know. <laughs> that I don't need to prep for things that I think you're going to do. I just know what the, what's going on in the world. And two, you know, one of you mentioned earlier, you know, Kitty, you mentioned like, oh, you're going to Vegas. The town's going to explode. That could happen. I know that there's a dragon that's going to attack this town. I have told you there's a dragon that's going to come and attack this town. If your choice is to GTFO, fine. As you walk out, you see this dragon attack this Thanks town. Thanks for letting us know. We're out of here. Exactly. <laughs> Which is fine. And if that's the only thing that my you know adventure was going to do, that's there's that I'm going to have to come up with what's you know what's the next thing. But ultimately, that's like one event that's happened, and I know multiple events that are happening that you can react to or not. So that's what I would do in my in my own homebrew. I don't have to do as much because I'm comfortable with the improv piece. Some people who homebrew homebrew for multiple hours per play hour. Um, and most of that content never gets used, which is very, unless you're truly having fun with it, don't do that. It can be very, very <laughs> discouraging to prep for like 15 different things your players can do and they still choose the 16th thing, um, which invariably is going to happen. Um, let's see. What else did I have here? So, da, 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 da. Okay. What you do not need to DM a game. Um, and we've talked about these a little bit, but you do not need a perfect understanding of the rules. You you need an understanding of the rules, but as long as somebody at the table knows the rules, you're fine. Um, but I think that that can be a blocker for a lot of people. It's like, oh, I have to know everything. I have to know the answer to every question. Um, your first, and actually, Fletcher, I don't know if I've ever played in a game with you where we were learning the game as we went, but I know I've done a couple games with Kitty of the same thing. So we played Savage Worlds, where our first scenario it was like a four-hour session was literally me saying we're all learning the rules together 
and we're going to fumble through this. And the first couple sessions, we fumbled through until we got into a good cadence and understood what was going on. It was just very much upfront saying that I have a general understanding, but we're going to be looking a lot of stuff up in that first session. As long as everyone at the table understands that, nobody's going to begrudge it. You know, nobody wants to go and read the rule book on their own. So they're not going to say, well, why didn't you read the entire rule book for me? So you can just tell me everything that happens in that 300 page rule book. Um, so don't worry about that, especially if it's a new group. Hey, we're playing D&D. I've watched a lot of Critical Role. I have a general idea of what the rules are, but we're going to fumble through this at first. Okay, cool. Let's do it. I think it's really what you need to do is have like if you know one of your players knows the rules better than you like you give them like license to be like you're our rules expert what you don't want is to set up a relationship i've seen this sometimes where like the there's like the player who knows the rules really well and if you have like a contentious relationship with them where you're like arguing what the rules are you know like then you have to kind of i've seen this happen where like like the gm has to say like That might be the rule, but that's not what's happening here. And you have to be the one with the authority to say that. And as long as everyone respects that, it's still fun. But that can be, I think that people really worry about coming into that situation. Just know that like you as the GM, you need to exercise that authority of, but I'm the one who says we can break the rule here. And this is how it works in this situation. It is different from how that is written because I say so. Yep. 100%. And it's not a comfortable thing for a new GM to do. Mm-hmm. The more comfortable you are GMing, the more comfortable you will be doing that. And the more you know the rules, the more comfortable you are breaking them. Um, but if you're a new GM and you have a rules lawyer at the table, you can what you basically you want to treat them like a toddler. They start saying, but wait a minute, swimming works like this. It's like, okay, um, that's great. Can you read up on that? And that's fine. Right now we're going to do this and give them another task to distract them from what, yeah. Redirect Redirect. them from their tantrum. Redirect. (laughs) It's like, right now we're going to do this because this is what I need to happen. But, you know, you you read through that and I'll cover it at the end of the session. We'll we'll go into the details. Um, There is a lot of parenting advice to be found here because I think earlier while I was upstairs actually parenting, um, you were giving some advice that was very much what I do with my toddler is I give you two choices that I want you to make one of. Here's two choices. I'm okay with either one you do. I'm not giving you the choice I don't want you to make. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. It is not, okay, put on your shoes or we're staying home. It's, do you want to put on your blue shoes or are you going to put on your red shoes? You have a choice, but is it really a choice? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So another thing you don't need to have, and actually John just mentioned this. um, John's exact quote was, I need more time behind the screen before I homebrew. I like having plot points given to me. Um, sometimes I like that. Sometimes I homebrew. It's, I've been doing this long enough where I'm comfortable doing either and both have their pros and cons. But what, what I will say for sure is if you homebrew and all, um, pre-written modules are going to be this by default, you do not need a fully fleshed out world. If you want to homebrew something and you're starting in a tavern in a small town, the only thing you need to know about is the name of that tavern and maybe the name of the small town. That's it. Have an idea of what's going to happen, what, why the, the players are going to be pulled into something, but you don't need to know what the rest of the world is doing. It doesn't matter. You're, you're not there yet. I think you have to know where you want the story to end. Sure. It doesn't matter how you get there, but like that's what you need to know, is you need to know the start 
and you need to know the finish and you need to have ideas of how to make players want to get to that finish. Yeah. I've refer- I've heard it referred to as the alpha omega concept mm-hmm. where you know the beginning, you know the end. The middle doesn't matter. You can you can just work with that on the fly. So, our small town, we're in the Leap and Frog Tavern in, you know, <laughs> middle of nowhereville town. Fine. Great. In my mind, I know that this is where we're starting because this is just where it's a convenient place to start things to go. What's going on in the world? What What's the big thing? Okay, there's an evil wizard in the mountain. He, he's basically turning himself into a lich so he can live forever, and he's going to raise an undead army. But in order to do that, he needs to start pulling souls from random villagers. Okay, that's my that is my overarching story. That's the whole thing. What is the end of that? Eventually, my my characters are going to have to fight this guy. Whether he's a lich or not, we'll see, depending on what the players do. So now I know that ending. Now I can say, okay, you're in a tavern, and the you know the guy sitting at the next table suddenly kills over and dies. And boom, the story starts. The cleric goes over and it's like, oh my god, the soul's been sucked out of him. What's going on? Suddenly, multiple villagers are like, there's so many things you can go from there. And just depending on what the players want to do, you can you can keep going from there. So that's it. That's an entire campaign. I could literally start a campaign like that, and we could run that for a year. And just seeing where it goes. What's the next step that gets you closer to that, you know, lich on the mountain final conflict? My point there, though, is not, you know, making up a story in three minutes. It's don't worry about planning out your entire world. Plan out. And, you know, what um, John actually said is he likes having plot points. Plan out your plot points. Plot points are just bullet point bullet point lists or bullet point items on a, on a piece of paper. This is where we're starting. This is where we're going. Here's a few main major details I want to have happen in the middle, if possible, depending. Like, these are optional things that could happen. Um, ideally, your plot points are things that are going to happen, whether or not your characters have any, you know, whether they do anything about it. But then you give them clues saying, hey, eventually this other town, half the souls are going to be sucked out of it. And now you have some clues saying, oh, we have a pattern. Look what's going on here. I think this is the next town that's going to be affected. You know, so those types of things you can start fleshing out. You don't need to do that all at one time. Um, It just, it's something that allows you to work with your players. And depending on what they latch onto, that allows you to take that direction. And if at some point your players are like, this they must be getting sucked into the underworld and you know we need to go to hell to to solve this problem and get their souls back. Hey, that's a better story than I just came up with. Yeah, yeah, that's what you need to do. That is a hundred percent okay. And actually it is super cool to do that because now your players have figured it out and they're excited that they figured something out. And if it's better than your idea, don't be proud about it. Roll with it. This is what makes it fun to be a GM. Um and that goes back to my last statement is don't work out the path for every decision your players could make. You're never going to do it. So just roll with it and have fun in doing that and creating that story with the players. Um, my players never knew that there was a necromancer in the mountains. I, I never mentioned that to the players themselves. So it doesn't matter what they come up with could be the right answer. And if it's a good answer, sure, it is the right answer. Thoughts on that? I know as players, it feels like cheating when you hear your DM tell you like, oh, this is how this all worked out. But we're talking about on the DM side of things. Is that still cheating? I mean, 
Doesn't matter. As long as the players are having fun, right? <laughs> exactly. A hundred percent. That is the right answer. As long as the players are having fun. All right. So have I convinced you guys? I, I don't know that I need to convince you guys. I think Kitty, you wanted to. <laughs> have have I discouraged you, Kitty, from running a game? No. Okay. Have you convinced Fletcher. me I'm gonna do it very differently than you, at least at first? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you... I don't want to run D and D. And different games work for different GMs, I think. I would never, I have learned, I never want to GM a D&D game. Or even DM, which is the correct term, but whatever. Um, Well, (laughs) only for Dungeons & Dragons. All the other fantasy games are GM. GM is a nice generic for everything. Um, Yes, I do think, I don't think the system matters as much as, um, I, I just don't think the system matters, actually. I don't think the system matters at all. I'm going to go 100%. The system doesn't matter. Um, But it is still one of those things that until you've done it, it's hard to know. Like, it's learning from other people's mistakes is very difficult. You have to make your own mistakes to learn. And the same thing with experiences. Learning from other people's experience is difficult. Learning from your own experience, you have to do it. So this is why I think everyone should run a game. It's a great experience to have, and you're going to learn something from it, whether it's a success or a failure. You're going to learn. Um, you're probably not going to have players. Your players are probably going to be your friends and your or strangers on the internet. And in any case, your players are probably not going to be completely honest with you of whether or not you're doing a good job or a bad job or they're enjoying <laughs> the game or not enjoying the game. Um, it's really hard for someone to say, hey, uh, I'm playing this game because you're my friend, but really this sucks. Like It's hard for someone to say that. And it's fine for someone to say, hey, I want your feedback on this, but nobody wants negative feedback. If I, There's a reason why I don't ask you guys at the end of every session. Well, sometimes <laughs> I'll ask you like vague questions, but I don't ask you. It's like, hey, how am I doing at this DMing thing? I, I don't ask that because A, I don't want to hear anything negative. And B, it, if it's positive, it sounds like I'm just like fishing for praise. I think everyone needs to remember the compliment sandwich. <laughs> when you are giving, which is a way to talk down to people and pretend like they don't think you're talking down to them. Yes. <laughs> no, it is not that at all. It is rem- like if you have something negative that you feel like you must share, that is the only time you should be sharing something negative. If you do not think that it must be shared, keep it to yourself. If you have nothing nice to say that doesn't need to be said, keep it quiet. But if you feel like I need to say something about this, find two positive things to sandwich your compliment, your your negative comment with. Two compliments for every one negative comment. And if you can't do that, hey Chris, you're being nice negative. haircut. <laughs> your DMing sucks. <laughs> Yes, thanks. you're missing thanks, one more Fletcher. compliment. <laughs> nice shirt. <laughs> yeah. Also, <laughs> also remember, nothing before the butt counts. This game is really fun, and I have a lot of fun. I look forward to it every day. But um, I just don't like the way your goblins work. Yeah, nothing before the butt counts. I like the way your goblins work. <laughs> Um, hey, different goblins work different ways. They don't gobble enough. <laughs> I think this adventure has been really fun. I really hate the noggin voice, but I'm really enjoying everything else about this campaign. Uh-huh. And I'm like, the noggin <laughs> voice is my most favorite part, but I'm glad that you it annoys you because that is the intent success. See, you improv. should never set up that adversarial <laughs> 
<laughs> I think, honestly, one of the skills you learn as running a game, um, and I alluded to it earlier with like the running meetings, is, and, and this is actually one of the things you should strive to learn when running a game, is reading the room. Um, you're going to have a number of players from one to six, usually. Hopefully not more than that. And different players are going to have fun doing different things. One of the best skills you can develop is looking around and seeing who's having fun doing what and who's not having fun at all. Um, you can oftentimes take that person aside and say, hey, how can I make this game more fun for you? Um, but you you really need to understand what is like triggering your players to like be engaged and what is triggering them to play Candy Crush on their phone. And the better you get at that skill, the more you don't have to ask your players, am I doing a good job? If everyone, if you see everyone's having fun, you don't need to ask if they're having a good job. If you see everyone <laughs> bored at the same time, like everyone's on their phone simultaneously where you're trying to tell your story, you're doing something wrong. Again, you don't have to ask. Stop doing whatever you're doing. You're and I, in that situation, your player's going to look up and be like, "Well, you're just reading four pages of text you wrote. I don't have to pay that much attention, right? Like, I can read my own book if I want to." So, yeah, learning to read the room—that's one of the most important skills. Uh, we talked. We didn't talk about like ways of playing online or in person and stuff. But one of the reasons why it's easier to play in person a lot of the times is it's easier to read the room. Um, when you're online, I don't know if Kitty is on her computer drawing, surfing meme book, or looking through her character sheet. I have she's, no idea what she's, she's definitely surfing meme book. She's usually surfing meme book. Absolutely. <laughs> I have no idea what she's doing. I just know that she's looking at her computer and that's what she should be doing because we're all staring at our computers. So it's a lot harder for me to read is is what she's looking at intently. Is that something like, is she looking at the map that I haven't presented to her intently or is she someplace else? I don't know. In person, I can tell if she's not interested in what's on the table. Um, in So it's, there's pros and cons to all the different things. I still like playing online because it makes it really easy for us to get two, two and a half hours of gameplay in on a Friday night with no commute. Um, but there are certainly advantages to saying, let's play eight hours on a Saturday. There's also cons to playing eight hours on a Saturday. We're old these days. But anyway, thoughts? <laughs> Kitty? Yeah, getting uh, <laughs> sitters. Kitty, am I a good DM? How How is Mostly? my DMing for you? <laughs> See? It's hard to give feedback. <laughs> oh for God. people listening, the silence Chris, was cut out. But just imagine that there was like a 10-second silence there. Your DMing gets worse the longer this episode goes on. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to call it an episode. <laughs> and yeah, so let's let's get out of here. Um, there's no post credits on this episode because it's already long enough because we go a little long in these episodes because we like talking about role-playing games. So Kitty, the faster you read and the faster Fletcher reads, the faster you get to go to sleep. We could both read at the same time. <laughs> Tabletop Game Tech is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. If you'd like to follow us on social media, the links for Facebook and Twitter are in our show notes. Want to watch us record live? Find the link for that in the show notes, too. Comments or questions, email us at feedback at tabletopgametech.com. Hosting fees and giveaways are sponsored by our patrons. If you'd like to be one of these wonderful people, you can find out how by visiting our website, tabletopgametech.com, and clicking the support us link. And there's a link in the show notes, too. Finally, a huge thank you to our current patrons. <laughs> Adam Harrison. Miles Goonbag Clark. <laughs> the Gift of Games. Jason Strong. John Lewis. 
Joe Hoover. Sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll speed it up now. <laughs> Jeremy Fisher, Terrence Mittner, Sean Peck, Christopher Dong, Jennifer Engelbrecht, Brian Arnold, Michael Yanikowski, David Sellers, David Radke, Jason Marks, Ann Reynolds, Christopher Letko, Stephen Judd, Leanne Verholst, Joe Raxfad, Weatherman Keith, Paul Raymer, Jimothy, Ben Gary, Matthew Droke, David Rank, Jerry Wong, C. Marie, Justin Willard, Jason Rodney, Cindy Loom, Eric Hoffman, Adrian Dong, Faz Flintham, Eric Slander, Glenn Cotter, John Williams, Sir Sully, Andrew Fayesh, Kamal Berth, Peter Fleming, Gary Bunker, Sahara Wentworth, Lightning Steve, Jim Conrad, Sean P. Kelly, Mike Smith, Caleb O'Brien, Don Gilstrap, Aaron Moore, Ron Nelson, Agnes Toth, Charles Pearson, Jesse Wheeler, Ronald Roy, Tony Simpkins, and David Garner. And thank you to anyone who's ever been a patron. Your support means the world to us, past, present, and future. Until next week, keep playing games and having fun. I did not mention at the top of the episode that I think we're going to make next week's episode a question episode. Um, so if you have any questions, send them in to us. And then next week's episode will be a question episode. We have a handful in an email right now that I want to get to. So um, Kitty's passed out on the couch. She has pillows over her face. It's totally fine. <laughs> Fletcher, good night. Good night.